The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 197 of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from the Chief Life podcast where I was interviewed on the standard Australian diet versus a low-carb, healthy-fat approach. You will learn how standard diets impact our gut and long-term health and why a personalized version of LCHF can suit almost everyone. We also discuss common LCHF mistakes, including what becoming carb-phobic can do to your microbiome. I hope you enjoy hearing me on the other side of the microphone this week. Guys, welcome to the Chief Life Podcast. I'm Matthias Turner, joined by co-host Stacey Lee Turner. Hey, guys. And today we are lucky enough to have Steph Lowe on the line. Steph, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So to give you a bit more of an introduction, uh, The Natural Nutritionist is your website and kind of your your hub. But from there, you've also created a whole heap of other content. You also run a podcast, um, which is called The Real Food Real correct? Absolutely. We sure do. Um, you've also written some books. So the low carb, healthy fat nutrition is the, the latest one. And before that, you also no, had high fat. Oh, sorry. Low carb, high fat. No, high. healthy fat is the book name. Sorry. Oh, sorry. And then sorry. the real food athlete is the, uh, is the other one that you've written. Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. So I guess before we dive too deep into it, could you just give us a little bit more of a rundown on like who, who's Steph Lowe? Yeah, for sure. So I've been practicing as um, an LCHF, so a low-carb, healthy fat nutritionist since 2011. So that's when I started the natural nutritionist. But if we sort of take a step back, um, I definitely had my own personal journey with food. Um, I don't know how much time we've got, but essentially um, I had some some issues with food. I'd probably call it disordered eating to summarize it as a teenager. Um, and the flow on effect for me, which I can now see was because I wasn't eating any fats, which of course our brain needs to thrive, was um, some mental health issues that 
I definitely was, you know, pushed towards the pharmaceutical route. I never went down that route, thankfully. Um, but I'm talking like 15 years ago now, before real food was vogue, before we knew what gluten was really. I was encouraged by a good friend of mine to try going, going gluten-free and he thought that would help, you know, how I was feeling. And I was super skeptical, but I was pretty desperate. You know, I didn't want to have to take pharmaceuticals. I wasn't feeling, you know, happy and I didn't really feel like I had another option. So I dove in. Um, for me, quite you know, I guess mind blowing at the time was that it was a real 180. You know, gluten free was the catalyst, but it really led me to dive deep into the impact that food has on our overall health. We know gut health and the second brain, but we definitely now know the impact that food has on our mental health. And for me, it was really powerful to learn that firsthand all those years ago. Um, and it definitely was the catalyst for me to go back to uni and study nutrition so I could officially share that message as a qualified nutritionist, which yeah, is something I've been doing for over seven years now. That's super cool. That's awesome. Thank you. I think having you know, you said you didn't know how much time we have. We usually go for about an hour, but let us know if you need to go before that. Um, and we love learning about the story behind the person because that is probably what led you to be where you are as it has in this case. Um, that lived experience, it, it almost, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost makes it um, having that adversity then allows you to have a better approach to help other people because you've experienced it yourself. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you'd always just found food really easy, maybe if you'd always been at a really healthy body weight or never had any kind of health um, complications yourself, you wouldn't really have that ability to relate with your clients when they have challenges in whatever area it might be. And, you know, I, I definitely um, back in the day in, say, my teenage years, I was what I felt was really overweight and it was a huge struggle. We all know being a teenager <laughs> is not the easiest at times, alone when you're carrying a lot of puppy fat. Um, and I've always had, you know, that metabolism that needs a little bit more work. Um, and that's, I think, been the journey per se, but it has really allowed me to understand other people's challenges. And I do a lot of fat loss to this day, whether it be with athletes or general people that, you know, are looking to achieve that ideal body composition. And yeah, I agree with you. You've got that firsthand experience of, of what needs to happen. There's no magic pill, obviously, but it's a sum total of everything that we achieve. Yeah. When we go out and do nutrition workshops at gyms, um, we'll often tell our story just to let the, the guard break down because what we find is until people hear that, they just think we're freaks. They're like, well, you guys have you just find it so easy it's like oh yeah but we've all had our own nutrition journey like i think anyone in in this realm probably has had some sort of nutrition journey that's going to lead them somewhere that wants to help others because it's like oh that's what i was missing oh oh this is what works so well for me how can i help everyone else now to, to see that as well yeah i guess they've also chosen to see it as a blessing rather than a curse they've mm. kind of used it to then educate themselves and others rather than just being like oh why me it's so hard kind of thing. So it's really cool to see you being out there and helping everyone. Yeah. And it was a hard story to share initially. Like I dive into the sort of the deeper details of the story, um, on my website for anyone that wants to learn more. But I remember feeling so vulnerable the first time I shared that story, but because it's helped so many people, I do keep talking about it to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes it more empowering when it's like that as well. You're like, Oh, that person got a lot out of that. That's really cool. 
Um, can you explain a little bit more? Like, what is the low carb, healthy fat nutrition? Is it is it essentially yeah. keto, but your spin on it, or is it is there a difference? Oh, I like this question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I use the acronym LCHF, which can be defined in a couple of different ways, but intentionally mine is low carb, healthy fat nutrition. Um, I deli- <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. A lot of people know it as low carb, high fat. Um, <laughs> But I deliberately actually don't use the word keto or ketogenic, and I explain this more in my upcoming book, but I think there's quite a lot of confusion and definitely this current division as to what the exact definition of a ketogenic diet is, Um, and a lot of people assume it's that 25 grams of carbohydrates per day, which we know has amazing therapeutic benefits. The research is clear how life-changing it can be for children with epilepsy. It's used, again, as a therapeutic agent for obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, those cluster of diseases which we know are caused by insulin. So naturally, ketogenic would be really helpful in those health, I guess, crises. But I don't think a lot of us (laughs) need to be having such a low intake of carbohydrates, especially when we look at our non-starchy veggies, our low sugar or low glycemic fruits and that resistant starch conversation which we can have in that in that gut health area we need to make sure that we have a personalized approach so you know with low carb yeah it's lower than the food pyramid and that's a bloody excellent thing because the food pyramid tells us to eat you know 400 or 600 grams of carbohydrates per day from refined carbohydrates which we know are not food So I think we've got to use LCHF and personalize it. So things like genetics definitely count, but your current level of carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance and definitely your activity level. So if you're doing high intensity or glycolytic exercise, like you you won't be able to do that with 25 grams of carbs a day. And I, I, I people definitely try it and it ends pear-shaped. So I'm really passionate about making sure we think about low carb as being a sliding scale from as low as 25 grams of carbohydrates per day up to about 150, which is for someone who's lean, really active, tolerates carbs well, um, and obviously maintains all those conditions with the 150 grams of carbs each day. And um, so in regards to your healthy fats, uh, is there a very finite window that you kind of look at or is it quite broad? It's always going to be a seesaw. So if your carbs are super low, then naturally your fats are going to be very high. So, you know, in that sort of, you know, type 2 diabetes or that metabolic syndrome realm, we're talking about, you know, 5 to 10% of your daily intake from carbohydrates. Proteins usually fixed, say about 20%. So then obviously our fats are going to be, you know, 70, 75, that really, really high intake. But that's going to look quite different for someone who's doing maybe 20% carbohydrate or 25% carbohydrate. So it's going to obviously come down to your overall intake because that percent is a percentage of the total calories, which will give you the total grams of carbohydrates per day. Yeah, the fats are going to be that seesaw relative to the carbohydrates. And we focus on two main groups. You know, number one are the omega-3s 
our anti-inflammatory fat, so nut seeds, olive oil, avocado, you know the deal. But we're also including those really important saturated fats. So that's going to come from the pasture-raised animal proteins, certainly grass-fed butter, coconut oil, MCT oil. And you can take a deep dive into using things like tallow or lard, especially if you're in that real paleo realm. Um, But there are a lot of options. It just needs to be quality as that number one goal. Yeah, it's funny. I've I've got a lot lot of people at the gym that I work at who are trying out keto and uh when i say keto in in inverted brackets it's because they said uh oh well my friend's doing it and she eats a lot of cheese and i think that sounds great so i'm going to start keto and i'm going to eat a lot of cheese each day um and that will be it i'm like so how many grams of fat a day are you doing she's like oh i'm not counting no i'm not counting i'm just doing it i just don't eat that many Grain, like grains or anything like that anymore. I'm like, oh yeah. my gosh. Taking the bits bits they want, but it's not the whole package. Exactly. Yeah, so. I didn't actually say cheese. You would have noticed no, that. Exactly. So <laughs> I was going to say, what is, the, what is the approach to dairy in general with it? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think dairy is a really individual decision. I think quality is going to be number one. Um, not many of us tolerate cows very well. Like we don't have the enzyme lactase as adults, so we don't have the ability to break down that milk sugar, that protein that's found in dairy. Some people tolerate like the A2s or the goats, um, goats cheese or even like the sheep's milk cheese a little bit better. I look at it as a sometimes food. You know, I think one of the reasons why keto gets that criticism is because we see these plates of bacon and cheese and we don't see any vegetables and we just don't see the balance with the rainbow and that nutrient density. We really want to make sure that plants are the hero of the dish. Um, Definitely non-starchy veggies should be the bulk of what we're eating in a well-designed LCHF template. Yeah, cool. No, that's really good to hear. And, I mean, like you said, it just gets gets misread Um, and so many people – or it gets a bad name. Is a good way to say it, I guess, because of mm-hmm. it. Um, are you in? Have you heard of Dr. Markula? Are you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's really quite good and something that I really love about his work on the the, um, higher fat intake and low carb is all about making sure you're getting fibers in and making fibers uh, a non – it's kind of like you don't have to pay for it that day. Like, hey, you can eat the fibers and it's not going to go towards your actual um, count of carbs for that day to some extent. But we're not talking about like, oh, tip-top's the one, mum. We're talking about like actual real food. Actual vegetables. Exactly, vegetables. <laughs> vegetable today because that's not part of your carb count, which I find is actually pretty cool. Yeah, I think counting vegetables is honestly, it's unless again you've got this strict um, template that you're following to try and reverse a disease. Um, I really think that we're missing the, the missing the whole point if that's what we're cutting out, especially when we look at the impact of fibre on gut health and the and the importance of the prebiotics, which are often found in vegetables or predominantly found in vegetables. Um, and that's something I think that people who are taking that deep dive into keto aren't considering. So they're essentially starving their gut bacteria, which we know can have a whole host of problems and definitely needs to be avoided. Yeah, yeah for so- sure. So how about when you're looking into specific body types? Like, I mean, um, we've got the string beans compared to the rotund people. Like, what do you do in regards to those people? Is it always the same percentage um, of your macronutrients or you do start to vary depending on what they're doing? And what, I guess, more so around the body type is what I'm asking. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, LCHS does have like a a definition as to what it might look like. So, you know, the the real kind of – 
standard is that 15 to 20% carbohydrate, 20% protein, 60 to 65% fat. But that's going to differ because if it is someone who's quite lean and very active, then they, they you know, usually have a fairly good carbohydrate tolerance. Yeah. So we would push the boundaries and increase that percentage and bring down the fats accordingly. Mm. Um, some people need to go a little bit lower, but I would say definitely not the majority. We would do blood tests and look at things like blood glucose levels, HbA1c, which is that three-month trend of essentially our carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance. We do a whole host of, of inflammatory markers as well and that can help shape the, that personalization a little bit more because, you know, we know that carbohydrate intolerance is caused by the food pyramid and it's reversible, right? So you might have to be on a lower percentage of carbs initially, but as your tolerance improves, you get more. Yeah. So that's the whole point, right? <laughs> yeah, and so win -win. if you haven't got bloods, how do you uh, how do you gauge someone's tolerance to carbs? Is there anything that you do in particular? Yeah, the big thing is looking at your meal-to-meal -meal satiety. So that magic S word that I use all the time, how long does it keep you full for? So a lot of people find it completely mind-blowing that you can get, say, five hours out of a meal. Like they're in that gym space definitely, but a lot of us have been told in the past to eat every two hours to speed up our metabolism. Like that's one of the biggest myths in the health and, um, you know, and performance space which is BS. It's definitely funded by big food. Um, so satiety is the big one. So you set up that blood sugar control. When you build your plate from your non-starchies, your quality protein, your healthy fats, you know, you're going to get that five hours of satiety and many people get even more. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, usually there's too many carbs, not enough fat or a combination of the above. So you've got to tweak what's on the plate and start to look at the meal-to-meal -meal window. And then next in line is obviously what that overnight fasting window is. If you have a fairly low carbohydrate tolerance, you've got poor blood sugar control, you know, you're needing to eat as soon as you get up, the thought of delaying breakfast would send you into a bit of a cray craze. Mm -hmm. So there's some signals as well that that natural ability to burn fat between meals and overnight. Do you also find though that when people are looking to lean up and you're getting them onto a more balanced approach of eating quality protein, um, non-starchy veg and like good choices of healthy fats, they might still get hungry in a shorter space of time because they're at a calorie deficit or should they still have that satiety moving from that meal to that next meal? So you're talking about like that first initial period of transition. Of yeah, like when they've been eating a certain way and then we're choosing to get them eating a, a healthier way um, to start achieving their goals and changing their tolerance levels. Do you find that there is going to be an expected period of hunger because of the transition or should they feel like they should immediately be able to have that satiety there? So there's this metabolic gray zone thing that we talk about, which is the four to seven days where you're switching from being a sugar burner. So someone that's eating lots of carbs, especially refined carbs, looking like the food pyramid, um, until your body can actually access fat as a source of fuel. So over that period of time, maximum a week, there's going to be, yeah, maybe some adjustments, definitely some detox. If you've been eating a lot of junk and sugar, that's going to be part of the process as well. Um, hunger is also very learnt. So you can have this ghost hunger at a time where you would normally eat. So breakfast is a really common one of that. 
you know, people are always eating at seven. So they get up at seven and they think they're hungry. And a lot of the time we could have breakfast a little bit later, but again, we've programmed the body to be eating at these fixed times. You know, we've been very robotic and on the clock with our meal times for so long. So there's the unlearning of that. But interestingly, most people, you know, at least a lot of us have calorie counted in the past. Unfortunately, many people have done 1,200 calories or less. And when you do LCHF, and let's say I start, let's just call it like a, a you know, a female client, she's 30 and she wants to lose um, body fat. Let's say I have put her on 16 or 1,700 calories. I mean, the detail we have to go into to make her feel comfortable with that extra calories in the first place is where we spend a lot of the time because it's obviously a what feels like a huge jump from someone that's probably been eating 1,200 and starving themselves for how long. Yeah. But the interesting thing is obviously because the insulin response is low, because the carbs are low, we can burn fat. So this, this woman can finally learn how to lose body fat without starving herself and you can get really good great meals if you divide that 1600 into three meals obviously they're really decent sizes and that's where you get the satiety value that five hours between meals as well yeah, yeah for it's sure so interesting when we send someone a meal plan they're like oh my god that's so much food like are you, are you yeah. sure this is for me have you seen my daily output I'm like yeah that's definitely for you yeah don't <laughs> have any less than this this yeah, is your exactly. minimum, this is your minimum. <laughs> yeah yeah, and some people will be eating like 2,000, which is mind-blowing for them. But obviously, if you're more active and, and so on and so forth, those numbers just, yeah, literally people fall off their chairs. You, you guys wouldn't experience that firsthand. So, it's a really good lesson to learn firsthand. Yeah, we actually find across, like commonly across Australia from what we see, people undereat or overeat the wrong macronutrients is usually mm. the big thing and probably a combination of both really. Yeah, I, everything you're saying, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what we're experiencing. Yeah, I but I think it's nice to be able to ask somebody else and then our listeners to hear that there are multiple health professionals around Australia that are focusing on like real health and eating real yeah. food and approaching this in a way that is, I guess, unconventional, but hopefully becoming the new conventional. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to stop until it is. <laughs> but the counting thing, I just wanted to say, like I don't know if you guys are the same, but people are resistant to counting or to logging. And I don't want someone to be in jail and do it forever. But how do you know what you're eating if you don't know what you're eating, right? Yeah, so exactly. when you add healthy fats, yeah, they're more than double the calories per gram of a carb and a protein. So quite easily you can get the calories up. That's mostly a good thing, but you can still to eat too much, right? You can still to eat too much avocado or too much total percentage of calories from fat so you've got to get into easy diet diary or my fitness pal or whatever you guys use and, and learn because it's a really important educational piece exactly and then once they've had that initial period of logging and understanding then they can go to a more intuitive eating style because they kind of know how much their body needs and then do a recalibration every now and then 100 percent Love it. Awesome. So how about when you're working with more specific sort of people like, hey, I want to come and I want to gain some muscle. Is low carb, high fat going to be a good diet for this? I definitely think it can be personalized in the right way. They're definitely going to be that top end 150 grams of carbs per day. Um, we can go up to 200. The definition changed a few years ago down to that 150. Um, essentially, in that instance, I use this concept, which is carbs to the plate last. Now, not everyone understands that straight away when I talk about it, but really we don't want the, the more complex carbohydrates like the sweet potato to 
displace the greens and the proteins and the healthy fat. So we need to make lots of plant material, small portion of quality protein, then we add our healthy fat. And then, of course, we can have, whether it's, you know, the sweet potato or maybe it's a banana in our smoothie or whatever that looks like, a whole food carbohydrate. That, you know, someone that's really active that wants to put on size might be able to have like quite a few portions of complex carbohydrates across the day, but they still want blood sugar control. They still want, you know, maybe three hours between meals for that digestive ease, that practical and logistical side of not having to literally carry like 14 eskies with you around during the day. You know, like we've got to think about the the longevity of some of these programs where it's literally just like buckets of food 24 seven. And because you do have such a good emphasis on quality of food, do you work out somebody's percentages and give them their grams of each macro for the day and then guide them on the food options as well, like with essentially a meal plan? Or is it more like, okay, here's a list of areas that you should look at. Now go have a play and see what you can come up with. A bit of both. Like I don't personally love meal plans because no one follows them, like no one follows them to a T. I think initially they can be a really good guide for someone to see, oh, yep, that, that's what I mean by carbs to the plate last or that's how I fit veggies in at breakfast because that's something that people haven't done um, over like historically at least in, in the West. Um, so it can give someone a really good idea of how to start, but I break down, I spend more time talking about that build your plate. So how many veggies, what many, like what size of the palm or the grams of protein, how many portions of fats, because then you can just put together a meal. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I think probably nine out of 10 meals that I make is not from a recipe book. It's just putting together, making sure it's on a plate and in my mouth in about 20 minutes so that, you know, you're obviously not taking up a lot of time and turning this into something that's not sustainable. Totally. Yeah. We, we call it building the puzzle. So making yeah, sure nice. that you've got all three macros every time you eat. And then like essentially we are a meal planning company, but I often will get to a workshop and I say, I don't give a fuck about the meal plan. (laughs) It's actually just a vehicle of education, like an easy way to show you recipes and what components are protein, are carbs, are fats. And then you can move it around. Like you pick, okay, which protein, which carb, which fat do I want today to build the puzzle? Um, So yeah, very similar, similar concept there around. Yeah, I think that's a really important lesson because people get so stuck to it and then when it's not there, they, they don't know what to do. Throwing my microphone, microphone around here, <laughs> I'm getting excited. They, um, they don't know how to eat beyond that meal plan and then when it stops, you know, shit hits the fan. So it's really important, yeah, that they know how to move things around and there's preferences and families and, and busy lives to factor in as well. Yeah, you just made me think of mindset, like how you said, you know, nobody follows it and then they do feel like they failed because they've set themselves up on this pedestal to go, I have to follow this exactly as it's written. It's like, no, you don't. It's just a way of helping you to understand what real food is um, and then, yeah, like changing their perspective around how to – I guess, put themselves into like what is failure and what is success. (laughs) It's like redefining it for them. So do you center any of your stuff around mindset? Because obviously food is food and we can tell them what to do, but then there's the compliance piece as well. Yeah, and compliance is huge, right? Like that's where it's really fascinating because there's so much horse to water being a nutritionist. Like I can't follow you around and I can't cook your meals for you and there are other companies that can do that. But um. Yeah, a lot of it is about getting them to understand that it's a 
lifestyle and not a diet, as cliche as it sounds. Like I'm very happy with someone's 70-30 or 80-20 and what I mean by that is that we're not trying to find that magic perfection that doesn't exist. It's really about starting something that you feel is a forever thing because I think LCHF is just real food. So technically all of us should be thriving off our own version of that. So there's no point doing something that you can do for eight or 12 weeks. And so it is breaking down some of those barriers if there's been that sort of diet mentality in the past, which usually is, you know, all or nothing, unfortunately, which we know doesn't work. Yeah. Um, something that I love is the around your book, The Real Food Athlete. Um, we get a lot of people come to us who think because they're an athlete, they can get away with eating certain foods. Whatever like, they want. <laughs> you know what? I look good. So, therefore, I must be really healthy on the inside. Yeah. So, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And they come to us and they're quite blown away with like the amount of uh, like vegetables and micronutrients we're pumping into them. And then all of a sudden, they find a new good, like that new level of good, which is amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like I think people – and this is cool because the the low-carb healthy fat is a a big big thing for it as well, big advocate for it. But – it's like we need to get away from that flexible dieting scheme of if it fits your macros. Oh, my God. I agree. I hate that so much. Oh, I know, right? Like in so many But people, I can eat a donut for my carbs, Maddie. Well, yeah. It's mm. like, you can, but what about when you're 80 and you are looking back at your heydays and you say, oh, I used to be able to eat that and now I'm fat and I can't, can't do anything or now I've got disease. I actually have I given myself that. type 2 diabetes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like you did, mm. or are you just saying, no, you know, no. When people like, do, oh, like they what? don't make that connection. Could you imagine if I had type two diabetes? That would be interesting. Yeah. Um, no, like people don't think about the long term implications of the refined exactly. carbohydrates. But exactly. for an athlete, for me, the penny drops when they realise that food can either be anti-inflammatory or inflammatory, and we know what we're trying to create as an athlete, right? That anti-inflammatory environment is everything for your recovery which equals your performance and that's obviously how we get the longevity out of our training sport whatever it might be so yeah you might feel like you fit your macros but if it's full of inflammatory ingredients you're, you're going to be impacting your recovery and that's the last thing you want to do yeah yeah we for sure. on our nutrition coaching program it's like a 13 week minimum program that's that's where we actually get to help people to understand like we're going to teach you how to count and do everything, but we're going to teach you how to do it properly. Like we're not talking about going out and eating donuts every day because it, that's your carb count. It's like, no, we need to make sure you're eating good quality food, making sure you're getting enough fiber in, making sure we're hitting your micronutrient numbers because without that stuff, you start to feel like shit. I love that you did mention about long-term, like longevity. Um, like how do you get people to care about that because obviously the three of us all care about prevention rather than treatment and we're thinking like you know I want to drop dead when I'm however old rather than like a slow horrible um decrepitness later in life um so how do you help people to see that now when they're just like no YOLO I'm going to live out and like eat whatever I want and I'll just deal with that later future Stacey's problem (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I always start by reframing someone's goals. Like they're allowed to come to see me for fat loss or whatever it might be, but their number one goal needs to be health. Because mm-hmm. you can't have one without the other, right? So yeah. we sometimes spend a lot of time talking about that. Like let's talk about my made-up 30-year-old female that wants to lose body fat. Like, yeah, that's her number one goal. And if she can't fit into her jeans, like she doesn't care about what she's going to look like when she's 70 right then. But, you know, I do. But I think if you can change someone's focus, especially away from the scales, then what they do say to you, oh, my God, I feel amazing. I'm finally not hungry every two hours or I'm finally not, you know, 
feeding myself full of chocolate or sugar or caffeine at 3.30 or 4 o'clock. And, you know, my digestion's better, my sleep's better, like all of these amazing day-to-day benefits, which are the first benefits that you see. Like you're not going to see fat loss first. I hate to break it to you, but you know, it's going to be a little bit slower than crash dieting and losing water and losing muscle. But it's not yo-yoing, right? Once it's off, provided you don't, you know, obviously reverse your ways, it's off forever. You've changed your entire metabolism and that's the key. And going on from that, like, yes, they're seeing all those awesome benefits. And then, you know, if the emphasis not being on the scales, they will naturally start to lose weight without even noticing. And I love the thing you said at the start when we first started talking was around body composition because muscle to fat ratio is so much more important than the number on the scales because they could be gaining muscle whilst they're losing fat and the number on the scales isn't going to shift but we know that but yeah <laughs> a lot of people find that one a really hard one to yeah. believe <laughs> so yeah swapping the bathroom scales for kitchen scales and yeah <laughs> being more conscious of what they're eating rather than how much they weigh so mm, that's really great so in regards to your podcast, you've done uh, yeah. 185 episodes, I think you've released or thereabouts. I've done your research, yeah. yes. Um, and so with that, like is there anything that you – like any episodes that you're just like, this is my jam, like this is the ones that I want to recommend to everyone. Like if one of our listeners was listening to this and they said, I want to go check out, what's the episode they should listen to? Oh, I'm massively into gut health at the moment. So we haven't kind of spoken too much about that today. But recently I recorded an episode with myself and Ellie, one of the other practitioners that works for me at TNN, and it's called Detecting Dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of amazing a kind of, you know, conversation on social media, questions, interest on that because, you know, A, gut health is a really vogue topic, but B, I think a lot of people are getting it wrong. So we went through a lot of the myths and, and broke down, you know, a lot of what we see on, you know, Facebook these days because that's what people are talking about but it's not a one-size-fits-all approach so that was a really awesome episode that was released only a couple of weeks ago now um and i love talking about longevity and things like and so there's a few episodes one sometime back i did with a researcher his um name is dr sachin panda Mm -hmm. and he researches time restricted feeding And that was super interesting. So I'll send a link for that one to you guys as well. Awesome. Very cool. And while we are talking about gut health, um, because something I I love to talk about to other nutritionists is around this stuff because obviously there's so many different options and suggestions out there. Can I ask you about um, your opinion on legumes? Because a Mm -hmm. lot of people say that they need to be activated before we can utilize them. But then there's a lot of people saying that plant-based is the way to go for anti-inflammatory, whereas I've heard it the opposite. So I was just curious to see what your research has led you to. Yeah, I think it's going to be individual. So people that have leaky gut or some sort of an autoimmune issue or fairly, you know, poor digestion, whether it's like a typical IBS or bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, they're probably not going to tolerate legumes straight away. They are the fermentable carbohydrates. They probably don't have the digestive capacity for those foods. So, you know, there might be a 30-day elimination phase, then the ability to like test things like activating the legumes to see if that makes a difference. Um, But then, you know, from there I think – that a lot of people, when they fix their gut, so when the underlying issue is treated, they find that they can tolerate small amounts. Um, and what I, we do a lot of testing in 
the clinic at the natural nutritionist and we look at certain bacterial strains and there are some that feed off legumes like chickpeas and you know there are obviously other foods but you know I think when we've got this diversity we create this rainforest which is that internal ecosystem that we want inside our gut if we're in this little box eating chicken and broccoli or whatever it might be we're going to have this barren forest and we're not going to have the capacity to digest food so the vicious cycle continues right we've got to get away from like if it's real food technically you should be able to tolerate it if you've addressed the underlying issues and you're in that state of health yeah yeah that's a cool tactic to come from yeah definitely Mm -hmm. so uh in regards to like what's actually exciting you about your practice and then also functional medicine in general at the moment yeah, I think definitely we're still doing heaps of gut health. And one of the tests that we run is well, it's by a company called Bioscreen, and that looks at the entire microbiome. So bacterial overgrowth, what bacteria is missing, the entire picture. Uh, snapshot sorry so it's like a window into your soul and that really excites me because we can personalize gut health you know everyone's drinking kombucha i see a lot of yeast overgrowth what is kombucha it's a yeast so you know we've really got to think about do we actually need these particular bacterial strains too many overgrowths are caused by the overconsumption of probiotic foods and beverages Um, and i think there's too much like one size fits all when it comes to gut health as well as like foods like broth or gelatin and collagen like there's a lot of ethical issues that i see that people have with these sorts of foods but some some bacterial strains grow off those foods so if you're a vegetarian or a vegan i think you know we've got to explore what your gut looks like so we can look at all right is there an alternative um, sometimes there's not and clients need to change their ethical decisions, which I would never force on someone, but I definitely respect when someone does that for the broader health goal. But in terms of functional messing, uh, testing, I just think test, don't guess. Like it gives you so much information so that you can take this advice, but look at, all right, how can I optimize this for my health and my goals? And it's not going to look the same forever because we all have different phases of our life like whether we are fasting or not whether we're doing more low intensity or more high intensity training and we should periodize our nutrition and and our health in line with those sorts of factors it it can't be black and white when it comes to nutrition absolutely no and i think so many people look for that one size fits all or you hear people who eat the exact same thing like you said the chicken and rice like every day or broccoli broccoli (laughs) every day and it's like um we've had people that get uh, like they, they've eaten the same thing for the last three years and then all of a sudden they start to get bloating. And it's like, oh, why is this happening? I haven't changed anything. It's like, that's why because you haven't changed anything. <laughs> yeah. And then the lifestyle factors come in and not thinking about stress. Do you eat your food? And, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you eating slowly? Which which nervous system are you in right now? <laughs> oh, but we, you're, it's a good point because we create food intolerances by overconsumption. So we call it the ceiling effect. Like you can eat egg every day until you eat that egg and then you hit the ceiling and you have this full-blown intolerance that could be bloating. For some people, it's like extreme fatigue. Other people, it's a complete evacuation out the other end. Like, you know, though your body speaks loud and clear, but you can avoid all of that really by getting into like food prep or whatever it takes to make sure that you've got variety across the week and I think that's really important to keep it quite simple but to get lots of colors you know different proteins different fats and so on yeah and essentially heeding the warning signs right you said like if some people are getting like 
rushing out the other end. Um, but a lot of people kind of go, oh, that's just my normal. I just have to live with it. But it's like, well, what goes in has to come out and how it comes out tells you how your body's tolerating it. And it shouldn't be blocked or it shouldn't be fast flowing. So, you know, like people need to start listening to those and, and explore that a bit more, hey? Yeah, definitely. And people, as a rule, don't like talking about their poo, but as a nutritionist, that's what we talk about all the time. And I think, you know, constipation is probably a more common topic that we talk about because there is that link with colon cancer. But I have a much bigger problem with diarrhea because we see these long-term nutrient deficiencies. Like like you were saying, the transit time is so important for the nutrients to be absorbed out of the food and for us to get the benefits from the food that goes in the mouth. So if it's going straight through you, there's no transit time and there's no time for breakdown and absorption. So you are what you eat, but you are what you absorb. So, you know, diarrhea is not normal. And we do the sesame seed challenge where you drink the sesame seeds and you time how long it takes to come out the other end. And 12 to 24 is normal, but it's not common, unfortunately. So there's a lot that can be done. It's a very important area to address. Yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. That's an interesting one. I've never heard of the sesame seed. <laughs> I've got a podcast on that one too. Yeah, there you go. Um, I did actually see that you guys did have – or you did a podcast recently uh, with uh, – with, I can't remember who it was, but it was on enemas. Um, and obviously, yes. this comes into optimizing health and talking about cleansing the system. Um, it, Like when do you recommend – people do enemas is this something that is a common practice for you guys at the tnn or not and can it be overdone yeah it's interesting so that podcast was with myself and kirsty worth from cultured wellness um we actually did the podcast because a lot of people don't know about it and when you first start talking to a client about an enema they'll look on their face like it's you've literally got three heads they cannot fathom like you're like do you know what an enema is and they're like the penny drops. Anyway, it's really it's it's an ancient detox tool. So it was used back like before the war, um, and essentially there's lots of different types of enemas. Like the solution can you can do a water enema, which is used very much in a medical sense. Mm-hmm. The particular podcast was more about the use of coffee, which has that beautiful, rich concentration of palmitic acid, which directly helps bile production and helps your body get gets rid of all the waste. Mm-hmm. Um, but with any kind of um, gut health protocol, most people are undergoing some sort of an antimicrobial treatment where they've actually got to cause this natural die-off of whatever's living in there in, in too high a number. That, if you don't support your detox, you will suffer. There's something called a Herxheimer reaction where the bacteria that are being killed release endotoxins. And if those endotoxins get back into the blood and cross the blood-brain barrier, you're going to get symptoms like brain fog or fatigue or our more typical digestive symptoms. So a coffee enema is an amazing way to support general detox, but definitely during that treatment protocol because the endotoxins go out with the enema, right? So they end up down the toilet rather than recirculating. So a lot of people, you know, finally, get to the point when they're feeling okay with starting to introduce enemas because they know they're doing this sort of gut healing protocol and it's a big part of it to make that gut protocol definitely more tolerable and and to try and mitigate any of those quite common side effects and you know you don't want a Herxheimer reaction you want to be able to get the body flushing those toxins out 
but yeah, the podcast was pretty eye-opening for a lot of people, but it has really made it, a, a, I guess, a more common conversation to be having rather than it being like an underground kind of chat, which it was, I think, for some time. I mean, it's been part of the Gerson therapy, therapy in that whole cancer realm for a very long time, and that's where people are probably more common or more aware of it, but it has some, yeah, some amazing health benefits for all of us. Mm. You can't really do too many to answer the second half of your questions. It's a lot of people, they start enemas, their bowels then get lazy and they can only go via an enema. And so sometimes that leads to the assumption that, oh, my God, the enema has caused a lazy bowel. Have I done too many? But usually it's kind of showing you that deeper issue that there is a problem with your natural transit time or your natural digestive capacity. Mm. So you can't really overdo it, but most people would definitely find it too overwhelming if I said every day. So I tend to say, let's start with one a week and see how you feel. Most of the time, the client naturally increases the frequency because they feel so amazing. They start to get a little bit more addicted. So I let that be a bit of a slow burn because ultimately none. So one is better than none, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's it's, I can't quite remember the name of it, but it's something like an angelic flush. And there's there's one here in Brisbane, I know in uh, Wilston or Wilson, uh, one of the one of the places near Wilston, and it's literally like a half hour session where you go in and it, it pretty much flushes the system. System. And from what I've heard from people using this this system, it's absolutely incredible. Like you step off of it, you just have like this new life of energy from using um, the angelic flush, which is, is as far as I'm aware, it's kind of like a seat that you sit on that has the enema and then you've got the toilet right next to you. And so you just flush mm. until you're completely cleansed out. So it's like going somewhere else to do it rather than exactly. doing it at home. <laughs> yeah. So, so that might be more like colonic irrigation, which is a little yeah. bit different, but definitely in Melbourne, there's a few um, enema options as well. So, yes, you can go in and like book your appointment, a bit like the solarium back in the day. Mm-hmm. And not that I ever went to a solarium, right? And um, you do the water enema first and then you do the coffee. It needs to be held for like 12 to 15 minutes. Like you work your way up to that, of course, but that's the end goal. Yeah, and you can go in and it's a much easier process. Of course, there's like the time and kind of financial commitment to it, um, but definitely if it's something that is new to you, it can be a really great first place to learn it as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love that you've done a podcast about it because sometimes, as you say, people will look at you like you've got three heads when you tell them about it, whereas you can just go, hey, I want you to learn about this thing. Can you please go listen to this podcast? Oh my God. That is why I write articles and record podcasts because I get asked the question that many times and I'm like, yeah. right, instead of me writing an email every day. <laughs> yes. Check this one out then come back to me if you've got any other questions. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> so uh the new book um yes. healthy fat is just coming oh healthy fat nutrition sorry um when did it get launched no we're still printing actually oh. so the pre-sale is on now um and we're launching at the end of november so booktopia have um and amazon currently have it available yep. um and booktopia has it at an amazing price at the moment so i think that's the um kind of like the the launch price the cheapest you'll be able to access it if that's interesting to you um it definitely goes through a lot of the, the topics that we've deco- covered today um but we also have developed example meal plans for those that want a bit of a guide at least to start and then there's over 150 recipes all of which are gluten-free refined sugar-free focusing on the quality ingredients and packed full of nutrient-dense whole food ingredients 
So that's, um, yeah, that's been a really amazing project for me to work on. And I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't awesome. seen it printed yet. <laughs> so for the launch then, is like, mm. you're doing a tour, you're doing some sort of media releases, like obviously podcasts are a great source for that. Um, what else are you kind of mm. using? Yeah, lots of podcasts. So we're sort of teeing those up for a little bit later this year. And then early December, I'll be doing a tour basically for most of December up until when people start to knock off for the for the festive season. Um, and yeah, we're organizing media. So I've been lucky enough to publish low carb, healthy fat nutrition through Hachette, which is a publishing house in Australia. Um, and they obviously have like a, a bit of a schedule that I'll step into. So hopefully you'll see me on TV and, ra- and hear me on radio as well. So I'm really looking forward to that I've kind of had to clear my client schedule for December, but it's been something I've been working on for for years now. And the book deal is my number one bucket list item, so I'm very excited to yeah to be achieving that. That's, no, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, congratulations. So, yeah, exactly. And so Thank was, you. It, was it a very <laughs> similar system that you did for the Real Food Athlete, or is this a whole new experience? Yeah, it's self-publishing is such a like a different world. You know, it was an amazing experience, but it's up there with one of the more stressful things that I've done. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you get a publishing deal and you have like three or four editors, like you know, combing through, and it's beautifully designed, and you know they organize all the printing and all the media. Like people say to me, like, was it hard work? And it hasn't felt like that at all. Like obviously there were periods of work with the writing and the editing and like it sort of went like a bit of a roller coaster because, you know, when it's at their end, you don't do anything on it for a little while. It's now, you know, a couple of months of not much because it's being printed and obviously distributed and all the things that has to have to happen for it to end up on the shelf. So yeah, it's kind of been just lots of fun, really, and I hope I always feel that way about it. Yeah, because you have some, been so exciting. some writers that talk about it being a really terrible pr- process, so that's a that's a really refreshing thing to hear, so that's good. Um, Other people have sort of asked me how long it took me to write, and it literally took me four days. Like, I shipped myself up to Queensland, like, went in lockdown, you know, no social media, no emails. Yeah. But, you know, technically I've been writing it since 2011 when I first started my company because it's all the myths that we've been busting over the years, like all the conversations around, you know, the cholesterol and saturated fat, the snacking myth, the carbohydrate fallacy. These are This is my jam, right? So technically I could write it straight away because I've been talking about it for so long. Yeah. Yeah, Stacey's actually gone through a very similar process at the moment where she's just she's actually going the self self publishing route at the moment, um, and it's been pretty interesting. But what did like so your writing process for this one was four days? How about your previous book? What did it look like? Oh gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago now. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember how long it took me to to write. But again, it's sort of more like that collation of stuff I've been working on. Yeah. You know, the real food athlete is obviously more targeted towards athletes and. You know, I see a lot of different clients, but I've definitely got that niche in more of the endurance world, and we see a lot more CrossFitters these days as well. Um, I think it was just more of a process in terms of like putting it together because you haven't got the team to create this beautiful document with all the font and all the images and all the layout. So you do that all yourself, or like I did at least anyway. So that was a lot of work once it was written, but not yet published. So that was where a lot of the work was for me. Yeah. I know. Um, like for Stace, it was kind of like, a, oh, cool. Well, I've done the work now. I've, I've written it, and then it's got to the self publishing stage, and it's like, oh, you need pictures, and you need this, and you need that. And it's it's been, a process. Yeah, it's been a process, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know if I'll ever do that again. <laughs> I, yeah. I won't have to. 
definitely. No, that's really cool. Um, and so, I guess if there's any any tour stuff that you want to send on, I can put that in the show notes as well. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll definitely be coming to Queensland cool. for sure. Oh, awesome. All right, very good. You. If not, we can uh, touch base later. But we might start to wrap up as we're coming to end of time. But one thing we do is we've got two questions we ask all of our guests. The first one being for you, Steph, is what is your biggest drive? Like what gets you up daily and makes you do the things you do? Uh, my biggest passion is to help the world understand that health starts with what you put on your plate. Definitely. Number That's one. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Mm. You can tell when a person's thought about this before because they just answer it straight away. <laughs> got to have your mission statement exactly. for when you get a little bit tired or over it, which doesn't happen that often, but you still got to keep reminding yourself, right, of that bigger goal because yeah. it's like chipping away for that underground diamond, right? You just got to keep keep on chipping. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, so the final question mm. is what's your biggest fear? Is there anything that scares you? That's a really good question. I'm not prepared for this one. <laughs> Falling out of a handstand? <laughs> no. I've got this fear about being upside down. I've been working on it so much. Like I used to actually squeal when I would do a handstand in, in a yoga class. I've gotten rid of the squealing, um, but I Progress. still have some fear to work on about being upside down. I'm really trying to work hard on my inversions now as well. So that's oh, probably not yeah. a massive one, but it's definitely something that's top of mind at the moment. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, being a yogi, you would know that obviously what you learn on your mat is relative to what's going on in life. So maybe you have a fear about going upside down, but then what esoterically or, you know, does that connect to? Yeah. (laughs) Start digging deep on that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good point. (laughs) Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, What are your handles for people to reach out to you on socials? Thank you. Everything uh, is at The Natural Nutritionist. So I probably hang out mostly on Instagram. So you can definitely check out um, more of my stuff over there. But my online hub is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. So there's pre-sale information about the book, definitely the podcast. And if you want to work um, one-on-one with myself or the team, you can learn more on our website as well. Amazing. Great. Thanks so much Thank for you. joining us, Steph. Thanks, guys. It was a ball. I had so much fun. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.